All right, you absolute legends. Welcome to another episode of A Need to Read. My name's Ed. I'm the host of the show. And I've got a pretty cool podcast for you today. I was privileged enough to go to the University of Sussex the other day and interview Anil Seth, who is a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. He's the co-director of the Sackler Centre for Consciousness Science there. And he's written a book that I read the other day called Being You, which is about the new science of consciousness. And that was a Sunday Times bestseller. I honestly loved having this conversation. Being a human is infinitely complex and consciousness is where everything starts. So getting a basic understanding of how being you works, as in how your consciousness works, it's a really interesting endeavour, and hopefully you'll enjoy it in this podcast. Now, if you would like to support the show, I am an independent podcaster. You can support me financially if you want. I've got a buymeacoffee.com thingy-majig, and that means that you can make a one-off donation if you like the work that I do. But hey, no pressure. If you can't afford it, someone who can will just pay for you, I'm sure. Also, you can sign up to my mailing list, which is in the description. And please also check out the sponsors of the show, which is Athletic Greens and BetterHelp. All the details for that are in the description. For now, though, I'm going to hand over to the conversation with me and Anil Seth. You're a neuroscientist, and that's a very vague way of putting it, right? So for a more detailed sort of description of your job and the work you do, would you mind just summarising your career so far? Sure. And my my career's really revolved around the central interest rather than any particular discipline. So my interest is in consciousness. Yeah. In this big old topic in philosophy, in science, and in everyday life too. And we all wonder at some point, you know, why am I me and not somebody else? Yeah. What happens after I die? And in philosophy and science this gets boil down to the question of how is it that this brain, you know, this this mass of neurons and electrical chemical stuff inside my skull, yeah. how does this, together with the body, create experience? Yeah. Why doesn't life just go on in the dark? And this is a big is a big challenge. It's a big problem. I've definitely not solved it. Nobody's solved it. But it's it's both one of the biggest mysteries in science and philosophy, but it's also an everyday mystery yeah. too because we all want to understand what it means to be me what it means to be you and so in trying to understand more about this question my background has taken me through many many different disciplines from physics and maths to psychology to oh. computer science and artificial intelligence which I, I did my phd in, in ai here at sussex about oh, cool. 20 years ago and then into neuroscience into the study of the brain itself mm. and uh Always bringing together lots of different disciplines. So the research group I have here has has physicists, has mathematicians, oh. philosophers, and people that work with virtual reality, um, as well as psychologists and, and neuroscientists. Yeah. And we're all trying to understand from different angles this this big uh, big challenge of what is consciousness, yeah. what does it mean to be a self, and surprising. And the other thing is that it, it also interacts very strongly with the arts. And I've always yeah. been frustrated about this this uh, divide between the sciences and the arts. Okay. I mean, they're both creative. And when it comes to consciousness, they, they, they overlap a lot. So in my work, I've had a lot of collaborations with artists exploring these questions from, from different perspectives, whether it's drama or literature or film or more recently, uh, this, 
Dream Machine project we might we might talk about, which, yes. is, which is really quite wild. Yeah, so it definitely is wild, and dreams in themselves are pretty wild anyway. And in, in your book, I think you spoke of them as, as conscious experiences, um, whereas most people would kind of think that they're asleep and that would mean that they are unconscious, um, as it were. But is that that's a wrong... I think so. It's 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 obviously it's very difficult to get a definition of consciousness that mm. everybody everybody agrees on. I think most people would be at least okay with the idea that consciousness is when there's any kind of experience whatsoever. Yeah. And dreams, I mean people are having experiences when they dream, otherwise we wouldn't call it anything. Yeah. Uh and so for me dreaming is an example of Consciousness. It's a different kind of consciousness, and it's very interesting to think about and try to examine what's different about dreams to normal waking life. Okay. But you're still conscious. I mean, compare dreams to general anesthesia. You, know, you have general anesthesia, you are out. Yeah. There is nothing going on. So that's unconsciousness. Yeah. Dreaming is definitely, for me, a conscious state. Yeah. So people usually think of dreams and and most people I'm, I'm talking about the general public would think about dreams and someone who might look into them and research them as like what do they mean but that's not not necessarily the angle that you're you're going for it's more of a what is the phenomenology of a dream is that correct or yeah so phenomenology means like what what is the experience like so it's a very it's a bit of an awkward word but it, it it's just a way of talking about the experience itself mm. so visual experience has a phenomenology it has a character things have colors and shapes and locations mm. emotion has a phenomenology it's it's things feel good or bad yeah. and, and variations of that and dreams have a phenomenology too i mean they can be very visual uh they can be very emotional mm. um certain things are absent in dreams for most people there's very rarely smell yeah if you think about it i don't know maybe maybe you do but most <laughs> people don't have very strong experiences yeah. of smell in their dreams and of course the main thing about dreams is that weird things happen that don't seem to be weird at the time you know, yeah. we can totally change location people come and go in all sorts of weird ways and it doesn't seem weird at the time so there's this there's this real distinctive character phenomenology yeah. to, to what dreams are like and i think it is worth asking what dreams are for but there are many different ways to answer that question Freud had one kind of answer, which was that there were repressed memories and desires and experiences surfacing um, yeah. during sleep, um, during dreaming. And do, do people buy that anymore? What's, what's the general, general consensus on Freud's interpretations of dreams? I don't think it's particularly favourable right now. I mean, his psychoanalysis in the end turned into more of a method of therapy and more into really a branch of literary criticism as well. Yeah. And there's not very much evidence for his sort of core theoretical ideas of the, the id, the superego, and, and yeah. so on. Uh, but w what he was right about is there is a lot of stuff going on yeah. under the hood, okay, uh, so to speak, all this you know, unconscious thoughts and perceptions. I think most psychologists and neuroscientists agree that there is a rich unconscious world yeah. But it's not that we've got a kind of separate unconscious mind, you know, an unconscious me and a conscious me. And during dreaming, the unconscious me kind of gets a go yeah. and, and surfaces all these, all these repressed uh, desires and things. I don't think there's that much evidence for that. No. Um, so there are many other ways to think about what, what dreams are for. There's 
for me quite an attractive idea that dreams are sort of virtual reality simulations for the brain. So we, the brain gets to try out different scenarios and what it might do in a, in a safe situation, which is why perhaps why a lot of people's dreams are quite threatening sometimes, quite uh, riven by anxiety. Okay. So it's like training. It's like training, yeah, yeah. But I, and there's another sense. It's like training too. I think the idea I, I, I like the most. This isn't mine. This is due to, um, well, one version of it's due to an American neuroscientist called Eric Hull, which is that we dream in order to perceive things better the next day. And this is not very intuitive. No. But if you think about as we go around our daily lives you know, with our eyes open, listening to things, touching things. The brain is always taking in new information. And every time the brain takes in new information, it changes the brain a bit. So we, we sort of expose ourselves to new situations all the time dur during the day. Yeah. And if we just continue to do that without, uh, without pause, what would happen is that we would overtrain our brains on the particular situations that we encounter. Okay. There's a phenomenon in in machine learning. So this is where the AI comes okay, in. Right? Right. If you train a system um, on one set of data too much, then it fits that set of data really well, but it, it can't deal with novel situations. Okay. And one way to, to get around that is to sort of prune down all the connections a little bit um, okay. and let it free run for a little bit. And that's what dreaming some sense might be it might be the brain's model of the world and the body just kind of free running a little bit yeah um in an unconstrained way because there's nothing coming from the world and the and the reason for that might be so that we don't overtrain our brains to any particular situation okay. so that we can see better the next yeah. day i think it's it's there's not really a huge amount of evidence for this i must yeah. say but it's it's a really interesting idea it's a hypothesis that comes from a very different place yeah it's it's quite a, a tempting one to buy into like it sounds it sounds good it's attractive um but you, your your approach to dreams in the, in the dream machine that's your latest project um obviously i've i've read your last project uh recently and, and enjoyed that but your latest project the dream machine and the perception centers um can you tell me a bit about that yeah sure so the dream machine is is not really about dreams as we've just been talking. It gets the name from an old uh, 1950s invention by an artist called Brian Geisen. Okay. And Brian Geisen, so the story goes, one day he was on a bus in the south of France and he was dozing off and the sun was low in the sky and it was shining through a stand of trees. And as the bus went along, the effect was you get there was this really strong flickering light coming into the bus. Okay. And Geisen was dozing, his eyes were closed, and he started to have all these remarkable visual experiences, colours and explosions of shape and movement in his mind. And as soon as the, the, the flickering light stopped, the experiences stopped. And Geisen got very intrigued about this. This was a very, for him, almost transformative experience. Really vivid, really powerful. And he discovered the work of a neuroscientist uh, called... Um, Gray Walter, William Gray Walter, who had been experimenting with this phenomenon okay. in the lab. And this is, this is the part I knew about 
um, beforehand. And this was still in the 50s. He'd been using early stroboscopic light uh, to shine at people with their eyes closed. And he also noticed that people would have these almost revelatory experiences. Okay. So this was the original dream machine. People would just sit with their eyes closed in front of a flickering light and have extraordinary experiences. Geisen thought that this was something that he wanted to make more popular than television okay. at the time. He I didn't see that. succeed in that. <laughs> but that's what he wanted to do. Uh, but it remained rather fringe. And I heard about this work about 10 years ago when I, I came across a strobe light demo and found this really interesting. Just as a, a way of understanding consciousness, it's really cool because there you are, you've got your eyes closed, you've got flashing light, yet you have all these experiences of color and shape and movement the brain is generating so there's a window there so so what's happening in the brain that gives you these experiences so we've been working on on that a bit but then the dream machine project was uh was conceived by a woman called jennifer crook that i've been working with for the last couple of years to reinvent geisen's original vision for the 21st century and that's what we've been doing we 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 took it back out of the lab and built these new kinds of dream machine where instead of one person sitting in front of a flickering light, groups of 20 or 30 would go into a space. There would be, as well as flashing lights, there would be a sound. We had the electronic composer, John Hopkins. He composed 32-channel spatial sound for us. And the whole journey would be guided by, by expert guides as you go in, you sort of settle down. Like a shaman. Almost like a shaman, yeah, almost. No, but, but definitely a guide because yeah. th- these experiences can be very unexpected for people. And, and so, yeah, we, we built this, this new dream machine and installed it in London uh, and then Cardiff and Belfast and, and Edinburgh and tried to get as many people as we could to, to share in this exploration of their own minds and brains. Yeah. And, and how's the response been of people being pretty blown away by it, I imagine? They have. Um, it's, been, it's been pretty much universally positive. And this is great. I mean, I was wondering whether it would work at all because the constraints we were building, we were working with were very different from the kinds of constraints we have in the lab. It's a lot yeah. less controlled, the lights are further away and so on. And everybody has a different experience too. Yeah. But for the vast majority, the response has been very positive. People just don't expect it you know, they go in that we tell them that it will just be white light just white light no colored lights only white light and sound and that's all that's going on and that anything they experience is created by their own brains and minds in response to this and people have extraordinary experiences and they come out afterwards and there's a space called this reflection zone where they talk about it and draw, they make these beautiful drawings of what they experience. Wow. We've got more than 10,000 drawings now. And, uh, and tell us, and, and fill in surveys and little bits and tell us uh, what, they, what they'll take away. And for most people, uh, they, they find it very emotionally powerful. Um, many people want to do it again. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the response has been, been terrific. They also come out with a, with a, a new curiosity about their own minds and brains and for me as a neuroscientist this is this is brilliant because much of what we use our brains for we just take for granted like i open my eyes and all there's a world and to try and 
ignite some of the curiosity and wonder about how our brains do what they do. I mean, that for me is a, is a big win. And, and how does that experience of, of the dream machine compare to other altered states of consciousness? And, and is it an altered state, I guess? Yeah, I would say it is. I think like dreaming is an altered state. This dream machine is an altered state. Psychedelic drugs are an altered state. Meditation is an altered state. There, there are many different alterations of, yeah. to everyday waking consciousness. And it's a very good question how they relate. Uh, it's something we're going to look more into. Mm. It's not identical to anything else. It's its own thing. And for most people, it's really very visual and, and it's dominated by rich, deep colors and movement and patterns and geometric um, things yeah. happening, uh, which is different from other kinds of altered states. But yeah, it's a big, it's a, you know, there's a whole range of, of different conditions our minds and brains can be in. Yeah. And in most of our lives, we only explore sort of a narrow range of the possible mental yeah. lives we might lead. There's, there's an old, probably fake axiom of like, you only use X percent of your brain. Is that, that's not true, is that's it? That's definitely not no. true. I mean, our <laughs> brains are, are working hard all the time. Yeah. Even when we're asleep, they're, they're doing stuff. Mm. Um, no, we, we, use, we use all our brains all the time, but we yeah. can always learn to use them more effectively, more efficiently. That's a different thing. And how do people learn how to use their brain more effectively? And I guess that depends on the context, but for your general everyday I've got a brain and I'd like it to be a better brain. Oh, that's, I mean, this is a really tough question. It really <laughs> does depend what, what you're doing, right? Yeah. I mean, I think there's probably one or two general lessons. I mean, one of them, they're all very obvious. This is not, you don't have to be a neuroscientist yeah. to say this at all. And, uh, you know, you need to sleep enough. You need yeah. to exercise enough. You need to eat and eat well. Yeah. I mean, you keep your body healthy. You keep your brain healthy. You need to keep using it. I mean, try to keep learning new things. Um, okay. The more different things you learn, the, the, the more flexible your brain and your mind um, will remain. So I think things like that. And then there are other things like meditation, I think, is really, really helpful and, and so on. But then it does depend on exactly what it is that, that you want to do. If you want to become a, a piano player, then you've got to practice the piano. There's really no shortcuts to this kind yeah. of thing. And let's just take something like music. My understanding from, from reading your book now is that you're just training your brain to do that exact thing so it gets to a point where it's good enough to just do it automatically because it's making a best guess of like what's the next best thing to do in for this particular note and this particular tune. Does that make sense or is that an awful question? Oh, I think, I think, I mean, we can take music as an example. Many people have learned to play an instrument or try to learn to mm. play something when they're young and, and, and so on. And, and you know, I play quite badly the guitar and, and the piano and I'm still trying to learn but I didn't start young enough to yeah. it didn't it's it, I, will, I will never be fluent in the way I'd love to be uh, but you can still try and I think the experience of learning to play music is it's a bit like learning a foreign language as well you know what happens for most people is is as you improve you sort of experience the process at a different level so yeah. at the beginning, you know, you're trying to figure out where exactly to put your hands on the keyboard mm. and how to make the note that you, you want to make. But then as that becomes more automatic, then you start to pay attention to, okay, what's the phrasing? How quickly, slowly am I playing? How does the overall thing sound? Yeah. And you pay attention to the overall structure of the music. And this is a good reflection of what's happening 
in the brain. As things become more practiced uh, and more automatic, they draw less on our conscious experience in the moment. I mean, we still experience playing the, the sounds. We still experience our fingers moving around. But the focus of attention can move on to something else. Yeah. And, and we see that in the brain as things become more automatic. They become outsourced, if you like, to parts of the brain that don't require an ongoing focus of attention. Okay. Well, that's very interesting. And I, and I guess that works for any kind of skill, really, is if you just keep, keep practicing it then it's going to take less of your brain power to do that skill and you'll be better. Right. I think, well, it just moves to a different part of the, b- yeah. of the brain. I mean, quite literally, it's sort of different circuits become become wow. much more involved th- than others. And so you can free up resources to focus on other aspects of the process. It's like, I'm, you know, I, I, I notice this a lot when I do talks in public. Yeah. You know, I, the, the better I know what I'm going to say, the more I can focus on things like body language and, yes, yeah. and the intonation of my voice and, and things like things that I wouldn't focus on if I was struggling to remember the actual words. Okay, it's important to get good at things then so you can, you can actually be good in other areas. Um, and with, with the Dream Machine, something that runs alongside that is, is the perception census, right? Which is where you're trying to see what everyone else sees. Yeah, so one of the the really one of the things that really stands out in the dream machine is that everybody has a different experience. There'll be shared there'll be shared uh, factors, there'll be common elements, so people experience colors and patterns, but nobody will have the same experience even though they're all going through the exact same situation, yeah. exact same sequence of flashing lights and music. And so when they come out there's this the interesting moment that happens between people when they talk about what they experienced and ask people, did they, you know, did you see that? Did you experience that? And sometimes it'll be, well, a little, but often no. And this is definitely true and it's very obvious in the dream machine, but it raises the possibility, and I think the reality, that this is true not just in the dream machine, but for all of us everywhere and all the time, that we all experience things in a slightly different way i've called this perceptual diversity this idea and it's a bit funny because we get used to the idea that we're different on the outside it's kind of easy to see i mean you and i we're different heights we're different skin colors we're 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 different in all sorts of unimportant but visible ways i'm a bit cleverer that's definitely true (laughs) and i'm probably i don't know better at football or something (laughs) who knows um but we can see these outside differences. Yeah. But when it comes to differences on the on the inside, you know, we can't see them because they're private and subjective. And we only become aware of differences on the inside normally when they become quite extreme and then we tend to attach labels to them, like, oh, this person has, has autism or this person has ADHD or this person has synesthesia where they have a mixing of the senses or, or you know, other things. But, you know, for people who don't have these labels attached to their experiences, we tend to assume that we experience things in more or less the same way. Like we're sitting in the same office now. Yeah. You know, we can look out at the there's a tree out of the window. It's kind of still green, beginning to turn a bit gold at the, at the fringes. You know, are we experiencing the same green and the same gold and the same blue sky beyond? Now, it's tempting to say that we are because we use the same words. And... It seems as though 
with just reading out the world as it is. You know, it doesn't seem like the green that I see is created by my brain. It, it seems as though, in my experience, that the tree really is green and I'm just seeing it as it really is. And if I'm seeing it as it really is, then surely you would see it the same way, unless you're wrong, you know, unless there's something wrong with your, yeah. your eyes or your brain. But this... This isn't what's going on. Everything that we experience, everything that we perceive, it's not just a, a readout, a passive registration of an objective external world. Everything we perceive is co-created by the world and the brain. I mean, the brain is deeply involved in creating everything. Colors don't exist out there in the world. No. You need a brain and a world for colour to exist. The, you know, the artist Cezanne said that. He said colour is where the brain and the universe meet. Wow. And we all have different brains. So we're all going to have slightly different experiences. Your green might not be the same as my green. And the perception census, sorry, this is a long answer no, to no, your, to your good, question. Um, <laughs> the perception census is the first attempt to try to map out this hidden world of perceptual diversity, to try to understand more about how we each experience the world and the body in our own unique way. Uh, and I think this is, for me, very, very exciting because we know very little about this. We just know that there is diversity in, in, different, in certain areas, but yeah. the census, we're trying, to, we're trying to look at many things, vision, time perception, music, sound perception, motion, all sorts of things, all in the round. And... Uh, paint a picture it's a census it's a kind of map like yeah. how do our inner universes vary mm. and i think this is a really important thing to do because it gives us a bit of humility about our own way of perceiving the world it's not that there's a right way and lots of wrong ways there are just differences between us all and the more we can appreciate these differences mm. i think the the more we'll be able to understand that you know, other people literally see things differently to us and, and i think that's a good platform for better communication better understanding development of empathy all these good things i mean there's quite a few people in in politics that could could do with that so that's that's good um it's it's difficult to comprehend when you think about it that that everyone will perceive the objective reality that we hope is there and let's not get into whether or not it is um differently i've i've read before that there is a a tribe somewhere on the continent of of africa who do not see the color blue there is only green for them and that's because of the limits of their language mm. it's it's all on one spectrum for them and that's how they see it and it's been tested and i can't remember the book that i read that in mm. um, but i've also read that women see on a broader spectrum of color than men as a general rule, is that correct? Well, I think, so the example of the African um, colour perception, I don't know about that one. I, w I would be a little bit suspicious of that. Okay. I certainly know, actually from the other perspective though, there's quite good evidence that native Russian speakers yeah. see more shades of blue than non-native Russian speakers. Okay, yeah, um, I could have been wildly wrong. And, <laughs> and th there's definitely this interaction between language and, and perception. You know, it could be a bit of a chicken and egg thing. We don't know what, what comes yeah. first. But we can certainly see differences in people's perception reflected in the language that they use uh, somehow. And so that's, that's true to some extent. Um, 
And it's also true. So most people, men or women, we have three types of color-sensitive cells in our eyes that are sensitive to different wavelengths of light. And from these three types of cell, we generate, or rather our brains generate this vast universe of many, many different colors, millions of colors that we can perceive by different combinations. There are some people, and I think they're all women, some, it's a rare kind of genetic inheritance, where there are some people who have four kinds of, of color-sensitive cells in their eyes. They're called quadrochromats rather than trichromats. And for these people, it's not just that they see one extra color, they'll see a whole new dimension of color. And quite what that would be like, I don't think you or I will, will ever know. I mean, there's a very oh. famous philosophy paper which is called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? <laughs> and of course, the lesson is you know, only a bat can really know. You can't, you can't have an experience for which your brain is not designed no. to have that experience. You can talk about it. You can use metaphor and so on. But yeah, the world of somebody who's got four kinds of color sensitive things you know two shades of blue that might look identical to you or i might be as different as red and green to a person like that wow and just gonna go back to psychedelics that we touched on a little bit earlier yeah does that make you see on a broad spectrum of color like i've 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 done i've done it a few times um so what like when i've taken lsd before the greens are so much richer. Yeah. Every, everything is richer. Obviously, everything's also moving and it's, it's quite unnerving at times. But it seems like you're seeing on a broader spectrum of colour. That's what you're being able to perceive now. Yeah, it's interesting because it's not that there's all this colour that's pre-existing out there that suddenly you, know, you open the valve a bit wider and, and it all pours in. I mean, colour is coming from the brain anyway. I think that's what makes it, makes it really interesting. Yeah. And you know, exactly what's happening in psychedelics is still a, a very open question, something yeah. that in my group we've been working on as well, you know, what happens in the brain in psychedelic states and, and, and so on. And um, you know, I, don't, I tend not to describe it as we sort of see more of what's out there. Yeah. It's that the way the brain is making sense of the information that it's getting is changing, and it sort of becomes a bit more fluid and, and flexible. And then the, the neuroscience backs this up. If you measure what's happening in the brain in the psychedelic state, the different parts of the brain speak to each other less and are a bit more diverse, a bit more random even in, in their activity, a bit more unconstrained. There's an old metaphor that people use sometimes about shaking the snow globe. And, and that seems to be you know, very, very roughly that's true both of what it seems like subjectively and also what's happening uh, in the circuits of the brain itself but that's a very very broad description and there's a lot more detail and this is this is where the hard work is you know we need yeah. to then okay how do we develop the the mathematical measures to actually figure out what's happening in the brain and why it leads to the kinds of altered experiences that people have in the state of psychedelia well, there's going to be some fun volunteers for, for that study then. <laughs> Just a quick shout out to the sponsors of the show and we'll get right back to it. Now this show is sponsored by BetterHelp and I'm really, really proud to continue that partnership with them because mental health is something that I'm passionate about because if I'm being completely honest with you, 
Quite often, I think my life sucks, and I know objectively things are looking pretty good for me, and I'm one of the most fortunate people in the world, but it just doesn't seem to be enough to convince myself of that. And I have found therapy incredibly helpful in just being able to function as a human, because depression really fucking sucks, guys. And if you are feeling depressed, if you are down, if you think maybe chatting to someone would be a sensible and rational thing to do, then head to BetterHelp because as an Lead to Read listener, you get 10% off your first month. All you'd have to do is go to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read, fill out the 10 minute questionnaire and you'll be matched with a therapist within 48 hours. So what are you waiting for? Um, so stuff comes out of the brain. That's what, that's what we're saying is that colors, colors do not, colors exist in, in your brain, not out there in the world. There is a lot that seems to exist in our brains and not necessarily in ob- objective reality. And, and the self would be one of those things. So me, Ed Cunningham, you, Anil Seth, yeah. we seem to exist, but is this just a perception? Yes. Now this is a really deep question, and but but bef- bef- forgive me bef- yes, before answering course. that, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying, and I don't think any of my colleagues would say, like that that everything comes out of the brain and nothing exists. No, no stuff exists. No, yeah. There is a real world out there, and while you and I might experience it slightly differently, it's not going to be massively differently. No. If we're if we're you know, waiting to cross the road and a bus is coming we'll probably both see this big object coming towards us because evolution has made sure that our perception of reality, while it's always a construction, is related to the real world in ways that that help us stay alive. Otherwise, there would be no point (laughs) in perceiving the world. (laughs) So the way I usually like to say it is that, yes, there is a real world out there, but the way we experience the world that's always a construction. We never see the world as it really is. We only ever see it as it's useful for us to see it. The, the novelist Anais Nin, again, has a lovely quote for this. She says, you know, we don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. Mm. You know, very, very, very literally, literally, we yeah. see the world. Even though it seems as though we see the world as it is, yeah. we are seeing it through the lens of our own brains and and, and bodies. Um, But there is still a a real world there. Now, when it comes to the self, there's another counterintuitive move here, which is not new to to neuroscience. I mean, Buddhism has been talking about this for for centuries, thousands of years. It may seem that the self, me, Anil, you, Ed, is this little essence of personality somewhere inside the skull that is doing all this perceiving, yeah. that's taking in the taking in the information, deciding what to do next, and there is a thing, an essence of you and me, that also holds all our memories, that decides what to do next, exercises free will, yeah. and that's the self. Now, I don't think that's right at all. I think that the self is not anything that does the perceiving, that takes in all the information. The self is a kind of perception. Okay. It's another experience. So the brain is the seat of all our experiences, and some of those experiences are of the world, and others are of being a self within that world. You know, being you, this is where the, the title of the book comes from. Yeah. What does it mean to be you 
it means that the brain is generating a, a whole bundle of perceptions, some of which are about the body, like this object in the world, this is my body, that's not my body, that's not my body. Yeah. Um, about the body from the inside, like how good a job is the brain doing at keeping me alive? You know, I can feel hungry, thirsty, happy, sad, frightened, excited. Uh, all of these are aspects of self. I can, my body can move in the world, so I experience volition, intention to do things. And then, of course, at, at higher levels of self, I experience a continuity over time. Yeah. Now, this is me today. There's something continuous with me yesterday and, the, and a year, a month, a year, five years. Though I think we overestimate that continuity. and That actually yeah. myself now might be more different from myself a year ago than it, than it seems like. Yeah. So it's not really... That, so, so there's this idea that some people say the self is an illusion. Mm. And this is often what people interpret Buddhist texts to say. Yeah. Maya, the self yeah, is an illusion. Anatta, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think we've got to be careful with that. It's an illusion in the sense that if we take our experience of self to mean that there's this immutable, indivisible essence of you or me that could maybe survive the death of the body and go into another body or be uploaded into the cloud if you're you know, a tech bro or whatever, yeah. then I think, yeah, you know, that's wrong. That, yeah. That's an illusion. But we all, the experience of self is real. You know, we all have this experience of self and it picks out something in the world too. It picks out this body and how this body is behaving over time and where yeah. it was in the past. So in that sense, it's, an, it's not an illusion. It's just not what we tend to think it is. Yeah. I guess like because it exists and you're bound within it by whatever your brain chucks up, trying to get rid of the fact that you've got a self in your mind is really counterintuitive. And I, f I feel like the brain almost kind of wants to protect you from maybe thinking it's completely an illusion and going mad. Well, it's very difficult. I don't think, uh, don't worry about that too much. But it's certainly, it's certainly difficult, right? <laughs> you know, we, we're evolved and also we develop in different, in, in throughout, through culture and education to perceive things in a particular way. Yeah. And especially in the West, we tend to perceive the self in this quite individualistic way. Yeah. Um, this is not true of all cultures. And of course, practices like uh, meditation are all about trying to get underneath the superficial how things seem. Yeah. way of experiencing things so we just you know you pay attention just to experiences as they as they unfold and in this sense the practice of meditation and the practice of understanding consciousness through neuroscience are actually yeah. very complementary mm -hmm. they both point in the same direction they both can lead to the same sort of Moments, it's very hard for me. I'm, I'm not a very practiced meditator, but, mm. but you occasionally get to this state where, oh, yeah, I, I, I now experience myself as just this process, yeah. not as this thing. And in, in that state, it's, it's a very liberating state to, yeah. to inhabit. You know, again, Buddhism will tell you it's clinging on to these ideas of the permanent self and the immutable self that's the cause of a lot of suffering. And if you can yeah. experience things, for the constructions they are, I think it does give you a, a humility, and and in my own life, it's it's helped me deal with with difficult periods, you know, periods yeah. of anxiety, periods of depression. 
meditation helps and this this broader perspective that okay you know this is this is just a set of experiences that have to do with the body that are unfolding in a yes. particular way right now okay. can can be really therapeutic yeah i'm i'm big on meditating and I, I think it does it sits you down right in front of reality and well, especially the reality of your mind and and what is the content of of that or what goes into it can seem really overwhelming if you just sit down and, and be quiet. It's and really hard, you, isn't you, it? Oh, goodness, yeah. yeah. Like when you were talking about the, the moment that it all drops back, I was thinking, and then you just fall back into thinking yep. straight away. You fall off the tightrope, but then you have to reset again. Yep. Um, but yeah, I, that's a, that's a good, good for the brain then. <laughs> I think so, but it's really hard. I mean, yeah. it's certainly not this like, no, I mean, I think maybe people much more expert than sounds like either you or I can can enter these states a bit more reliably Mm. but certainly for me it's it's really tough it's it's valuable but it's tough because yes you just keep falling off the bike and then you and then you but that's part of the process it's noticing that and bringing yourself back and it's that continue bringing yourself back that for me that's that's what meditation feels like most of the time. Yeah, definitely. There's there's a lot of people who chuck out the romantic idea that you sit down and you go and sit on a cloud for a little yeah, while and I relax, like. but it's <laughs> it's more like a battle going on inside your yeah. head and you're having to just try and stand still and, yeah. and not pay too much attention to it. Um, now, you did also mention free will. Yes. I, my kind of understanding of free will is I've read Sam Harris's essay on free will. I've listened to a few of like people that have been on Lex Friedman's podcast to speak about free will being this illusion. And if I'm honest, I'm pretty sad about it um, because it's, it's a lot to take on that you might not have the agency that you think you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in your book, you, you spoke about free will in a way that kind of put me at ease a bit, which honestly oh, I can't good. thank you enough for because <laughs> that's been a long time coming. Um, but you speak about spooky free will and there was another type of free will that you spoke about yeah i well i so um, well, i'm glad you found it reassuring i and i've i've actually found it quite reassuring too i must admit coming to this particular view it, it's not totally different from people like sam harris um but i think it's it's not entirely the same so i the, there are two keys the, the first key is to distinguish spooky free will as you mentioned from other kinds of, of free will yeah so when people say free will doesn't exist or free will is an illusion, you know, what kind of free will are they talking about? So there's this there's this idea that that for free will to be meaningful, it has to be this kind of mental force that's coming from the essence of you or me, like coming yeah. from this idea of a self that we've just yeah. dis- just the established that back, doesn't the exist anyway. The- yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's pulling strings inside the body or inside the brain and making stuff happen that wouldn't otherwise happen, like intervening into the causal fabric of the universe to change the you know, change the outcome. Yeah. This is asking a lot. I mean, this is this is not asking for some sort of complicated biological phenomenon. This is asking to change the laws of physics. Yeah. Uh, to have something that can pop in and alter the flow of physical events. And this is just not happening. And also not the kind of free will that we should want to preserve, that we should want to have. I mean, there's a whole argument in the philosophy of free will where people say, well, if the universe is deterministic, which means that 
you know, every state is predetermined by what happened before. Yeah. You know, then there can be no room for free will. Yeah. But the only kind of free will there's no room for is this spooky one that comes in and changes stuff around. Okay. Now, we don't have that. I believe we don't have that kind of free will. I don't believe that's a possible kind of free will to have. No. But I don't think we we lose anything by ruling that out. No. Now we are so what what's left? If we rule that out, do we have to be sad or can we still be comfortable with our roles in the world? So we all experience free will. Like I you know, I just can decide to pick up this and have a bit more coffee now. Yeah. Just put it down on the table. It felt like a voluntary action. Nobody forced me to do it. Mm. I had I felt like doing it, I did it. So there's this experience. But what actually is going on there? Was there this essence of me that parachuted into the brain and pulled some strings? No. It's simply that we're all very complicated mm. organisms. Yeah. And we do things. And sometimes the things we do have causes that go back further within our own brains and bodies and don't immediately come from the world. Like if I put my hand on a typical example, I put my hand on a hot stove and yeah. I remove my hand before I even realize it. That didn't feel like a voluntary action because the cause was right there in the world. Yeah. Somebody kicks me in the shin, you know, I, you know I, same thing. Yeah. But if I, if I sort of swing my leg to kick a football or pick up this cup, feels like a voluntary action. Yeah. The causes have come from, from within. So this is the kind of free will that, that we do have. Mm. You know, the l- action, some actions that we make are deeply rooted in our history yeah. of, of who we are. And we experience those particular actions as voluntary. And so I think that's, that's kind of all the, all the free will that we need. You know, we, yeah. we do things that come largely from within. Mm-hmm. If we think about what an experience of free will is like, it feels like that. There's another aspect, which is, just makes it tricky is that it feels like we could have done otherwise too yes that's that's the other tricky part that's what makes people cling on to this idea that for free will to make sense there must have been something that parachuted in and changed things yeah but that's just that's just part of the experience so i I like to think of experiences of free will a bit like experiences of color red green doesn't exist out there in the world but it's still a very useful thing for our brains to create. And seeing color is very useful for us because we can tell surfaces under different lighting conditions. Yeah. Experiencing free will is very useful for us to do as well because it, it labels certain things that we do as coming largely from within, yeah. and then we can learn from them. And we might do differently the next time because our brains won't be the same the next time. And And should you rewind the the clock back on the universe and everything as it was before you pretty much could never have acted differently right like it was always going to be the thing that you did and and yeah. i find one one of the positive things and since i started having a look into free will is that i feel a lot more compassion for people and particularly myself which is really handy um because of that understanding that like well everything kind of led me to doing that anyway and of course there are going to be people out there who end up doing awful things and i just don't know whether it should be my compassion should die with me on that hill of like well that was they kind of 
we're always going to do that, whatever that negative thing is. Yes, I, and there's there's, I think this is this is. Let me try and think how to respond to that. But it's um, basically I agree with you that it it can, in the best case, it can foster compassion for others and compassion for the self. It's not so much that you are always going to do X. I mean, there might be randomness in the universe. Of course. But the thing is, that randomness is not like a little window for this spooky free will to, to get in there. No. You know, things might turn out differently, but if they do, it won't really have anything to do with your free will. It's just because there's, there's randomness. Okay. Um, so to the extent that you have control, no, you couldn't have done differently. And if the universe, if you replay the tape of the universe, you will get the same thing apart from differences that are just due to randomness yeah and so this can you know what what lesson can you draw from that some people i think wrongly draw this idea of fatalism they're like okay well then you know what's the point of trying to do anything like, i'll just yeah. sit back and and let stuff happen of course that's a decision too and if you do that well you couldn't have done anything else yeah, but that's yeah. not that's not sort of a conclusion that you can draw no you just keep on doing what you're doing and you yeah. still have the same experiences but i do think you can it cultivates a bit more compassion towards those experiences and actually mm. you know to the extremes it can change the way we might think about uh law and yeah. punishment and retribution there are already some examples of people who whose character changed dramatically yeah um and so there's one example i, I talk about in the book a famous example of a America's first mass school shooter, you know, not, not a happy example, but uh, a student, a guy, an engineering student who shot a bunch of people um, in Texas from the top of a water tower. And he left a note and he'd asked in his suicide note, he was killed at, at the scene. He asked in his suicide note for his brain to be examined. And it turned out that he had this brain tumor that was pressing down on part of the brain called the amygdala, which is... Important, important in, in fear responses as well. Yeah, and um, if you look at a case like that, it's very hard to to say. Well, I can't really blame him for what he did. It was it was his the yeah. fact that he had a brain tumor, and of course he didn't decide to have this brain tumor. No. And if he hadn't have had the brain tumor, we'll never know. But it seems unlikely that he would have gone and and committed this this terrible crime. Yeah. But of course, in a sense, we're all brain tumors all the way down. I mean, none of us chose to have the brains that we have. No, yeah. So how can we hold people responsible for, for what they do? Yeah, of course, because we don't choose what we want. I think that's that's quite a big a big point in the in the world of free will is that there is no freedom because you don't get to choose your wants. You right, but there's that little bit that gives people hope in between wanting something and, and doing something. Yeah. Um, and cases like that, there was, there was another case in your book of a, a school teacher who had a tumor, started to be sexually attracted to children, uh, had the tumor taken out and was no longer sexually attracted to humans, was back to his normal life. And there was no history of that before. And that ties into the self not being this kind of constant, thing and, and my grandma died of dementia uh, a couple of years ago and she she was her but not not her by by the end of it and that was a is it a degenerative brain disease that 
Yes. Correct, yeah. yes. So it, it makes you think about it. I think it's an interesting thing to think about, and I think it's one of those things that you kind of have to dip in and out of every now and then to, to keep thinking about it, because it, it bears a lot of thinking about. Right? It does bear a lot of thinking <laughs> about. I, I, I think it does... It, it, does warrant to, this is again why people meditate but you don't have yeah. to meditate just to just to think about it from, from yeah. different perspectives too and just to remind yourself that the experience of being who you are it doesn't point to any one essence of you like no. in the middle of your brain or or up in the sky or wherever it might be yeah. it is a continually unfolding process a perception and what it is to be you will change over time. You know, sometimes it will change dramatically if you have a brain tumor, if you have neurodegenerative disease. Some people would say after taking psychedelics that their experience of self yep. is changed quite rapidly as well. But the harder point to realize is that it's changing all the time anyway. It's yeah. just changing so slowly, usually, that we don't really notice the change. We're becoming different people all the time. And we labor under the illusion that these are just sort of variations on, on, a, on a stable, continuously present essence. Now, it doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem like that to me either. You know, mm. I, I wake up and I still struggle with the same frustrations and regrets and anxieties and stresses and, and all, all these sorts of things. But it does help occasionally just to, just to remind myself of the lesson of of the neuroscience and the philosophy and, and the, the complementary perspectives that the self is always changing. It is always evolving. And you know, if that's true, then we can be a little bit more compassionate to ourselves yeah. and we can worry a, a little bit, a little bit less. Yeah. Yeah. This, this change will happen and that's fine. Yeah, and that doesn't seem to stop at really any any stage of your life. As long as your brain's ticking, it's it's making new corrections, and it is technically changing you, right? It is changing you. Yeah, I mean, we we're always different people. We'll be different people at the end of this conversation than we were at the beginning of this yeah. conversation. Not radically, maybe, maybe who knows? <laughs> but but a little bit certainly, and just the same way that you know, we'll change how we experience the world. Yeah, I mean, it may seem as though it's the same experience all the time, but it's it's not going to be. It's going to be slightly different mm. every time, and that that applies to the self too. And I think that that for me, the best way to bring these ideas to mind is to always just remind myself that how things seem is is not how they are. Yeah, whether it's an experience of the world around me or whether it's an experience of, of the self. We tend to take our experiences literally, yeah. but we, we should be always, I think, cautious of that and try to understand that, no, that's just the brain's interpretation of what's going on. And that it's, that might change, that, well, that will change over time, yeah. but it's not necessarily reflecting exactly what's going on whether that's something in the world or something about the self yes and and would that mean like in in your personal life your responses to social engagements all of that like 
just because your brain is telling you one thing about how that experience is being felt doesn't necessarily mean that that's what it is. I mean, I would love to be able uh, to have assimilated all this stuff in my own personal life much better. I mean, yeah. I, I, just as I look out the window again, even though I know that colours don't exist in the world, of course yeah. I still see yes, yeah, the yeah, colour, yeah. the, the tree is being green. And so there's course, still anguish. There's still <laughs> anguish and I still experience free will. I mean, it, it can't, I don't think you can rewire your brain to that extent simply yeah. through these different perspectives. What they do do is they add, they add another layer. Yeah. And I think it's the same with meditation. It adds, it adds another layer. It doesn't fundamentally change your experience of, of daily life, but, but it can add a different context to it. And that can be helpful. Okay. One thing I'd just like to think about is I imagine there are communities around the world that would kick back at a, a book like this because they would want you to have a immaterial soul that's going to go go off to heaven um, when you die. Are there are brain areas quite closely linked to religious belief or openness to it. Is that correct? Um, yeah, I, I don't really know too much about that, to be honest. I mean, the, the sort of, the, yeah, the brain basis, like, I think anything that we believe, that we perceive, the brain is playing some role in. Um, but whether, I, I, I tend to push back about this drawing too close associations between say this brain region mm. and something that is so culturally socially dependent yeah. as a, as a religious belief you know yes we can say there's a brain region for perceiving color yeah. yeah but even that it's not just it's not just color just happens there i mean it's that brain region in communication interaction yeah. with with many others in a, in a complex network but you know color has been sufficiently sort of baked into how our brains work yeah. that you can I, you can identify it with a particular area. But when it comes to things like religious belief, yeah, I mean, we certainly, you know, evolution hasn't hardwired one particular area for that, right. or at least I'd be massively surprised if it did. Yeah. It's going to be something that is best understood as the product of, a, of many parts of the brain acting in a particular social and cultural context. Okay, and like relative to experience etc because because your brain can change from experience yeah one thing i would just like to do because at this point in the podcast for people listening they're going to get a clip of a part of your ted talk have a listen to this sounded strange right have a listen again and see if you can get anything Still strange. Now listen to this. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. <laughs> Which I do. Um, so you heard some words there, right? Now listen to the first sound again. I'm just going to replay it. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. Yeah? So you can now hear words there. Once more for luck. I think Brexit is a really terrible idea. So this example that we just heard, I think, is a beautiful example of how our brain's expectations you know, shape what we experience, that it's not just a direct readout of the sensory signals that come into our eyes, or, or in this case, into our ears. Yeah. So what happened in this example was we first heard some very uh, distorted speech. Yeah. And most people don't even recognize it as speech. It just sounds like noisy whistles. Yeah. But it is a recording of me saying something. 
and, and then distorted. And then we give the brain a template. We give the brain a prediction, an expectation of what actually caused that sound. I play the uncorrupted speech, the undistorted speech. Mm. And with that new expectation, you play the same, the very, very same corrupted signal again, the noisy whistles, and it sounds completely different, right? Yeah. Now you can hear words, you can hear a phrase, which I think actually I still, you know, that was from six, when was it? Five or six years ago? Yeah. And it's still, to me, as true as it was then. <laughs> yeah. um, but you hear this phrase. And what this tells us is that our, the predictions, the expectations that our mind, our brain has, can change our experience very, very quickly. The sensory information has remained exactly the same. All that's changed is what our brain thinks is the cause of that sensory information yeah. and our conscious experience totally changes it's fascinating that was that was one of my favorite parts of the ted talk because honestly blows my mind anything to do with perception i've seen stuff that you speak about with the like the, the fake hand which i've i've seen in here here somewhere yeah there's always a fake hand somewhere <laughs> in this office um but yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure chatting with you, Anu. I really, really appreciate your time. Uh, people can find the Perception Census that's on the website. That's right. So yes, the Perception Census, we're hoping for really as many people to take part as possible. Anyone, anywhere in the world can take part. As long as you're over 18, all you need is your own computer. You can, it's, we've designed it to be fun and engaging and informative and you can do as much or as little as you like. Please uh, yeah, give it a go if you can. It's um, easily findable. Just Google Perception Census yeah. or, or look at my website, which is yeah. anilseth.com, and you can find the Perception Census through that. Cool. Perfect. Is there any, any other books coming out for you at any point? Not yet. This book, this book being you, to be honest, <laughs> it's, it's like, it took me about five years to write, wow. but frankly, it's, it's reflecting about 20 years of what I've been thinking about. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'd love to write another one, but nothing is around the corner just yeah. yet. All right. Well, honestly, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on now. Thank you, Ed. It's, it's been a pleasure. Well, my friends, if your brain has exploded, then I do apologise. Of course, this stuff is quite confusing, uh, but if it's what the scientists are doing and it has something to do with us, then it's important that we kind of know what we are, right? I guess in some ways it's not. We can just get on and not understand what it's like to be us. But I know that most of you listening will kind of be interested in finding out what's beneath the surface of most of the general facts of day-to-day life. And that starts with just being us. So hopefully you'll have learned something today. I'm sorry if I put you into an existential crisis with speaking to people like Anil. I've been through existential crises myself trying to learn about this stuff. So I don't know if it's a bit selfish of me to put it on other people. But I trust that a lot of you are more intelligent than I am and able to deal with things like this. So thanks for listening. You're absolute heroes. If you want to support the podcast, there's loads of ways to do that in the description. But, you know, come back next week. I love you. Au revoir.